expanding into a new export market is one of the most recognized ways for growth for businesses. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to season four of Digital Marketing Masters, where we are interviewing 50 of the top business and sales book authors. And I'm excited today because we've got Levin Yildiz Goren is going to be on the show. How are you, Levin? I'm great, Matt. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Yeah, and, and thank you so much for being on the show. I really love this topic today because international business is something that my company has kind of just been delving into. My business partner lives in Costa Rica for our marketing agency and our company's based in the United States and I moved to Canada. So we're kind of already international. Very international, yeah. <laughs> well, we've got some clients in the UK and Australia and New Zealand, as well as, you know, Canada, USA and Costa Rica. So we're kind of international already. So yeah, I think it's super important. I wanted to have a quick uh, read of your bio here so people know a little bit more about you. Levent was born in Turkey, but spent the last quarter of a century running a highly successful professional localization service based in the UK. It's decades of learning about pitfalls and prizes of the export market are shared in his book through his lingo model. He has helped companies do business in more than 100 languages. And his book is called Good Business in Any Language, How to Thrive in global markets. And Levin, I wanted to ask you kind of straight out of the gate, what are the most common misunderstandings that happen, you know, cultural misunderstandings that happen when people try to do business in other countries? Matt, I'm not suggesting that I know everything, but I can tell you about the most common mistakes. Did you know that 50% of mergers and acquisitions fail? due to cultural misunderstandings. So the cost of a cultural <laughs> misunderstanding is, is, can be quite, quite big, quite large. And for small to medium-sized businesses, it can be disastrous. Can you imagine you're traveling, you travel to a country to do business, you know, the cost of travel, hotel and exhibition and the, all the arrangements you made can be ruined because of a cultural misunderstanding. That's crazy. It's a, it's a high bill to pay. On the other hand, it is not that difficult to overcome the cultural barriers. Okay, language barriers are slightly different, but cultural barriers can be overcome easily by showing awareness, you know, having awareness and, and respecting the other culture. Can I give you a couple of examples? Absolutely. For example, we were talking earlier about handshake. You know, in the Western Hemisphere, United States, UK, most European countries, a firm handshake is, is a sign of sincerity. But in, in Far East, where the handshake is not part of the tradition, where they bow, a firm handshake can come across a bit aggressive, especially at the beginning of the relationship where the parties don't know each other very well. So this is one example. The other one is that really um, that I find fascinating is how silence is interpreted differently between different cultures. Normally, you wouldn't, you know, you would wait for me to finish what I have to say. And then you will start, you know, if you're talking about the subject, you will st 
you will uh, continue with your conversation. And if I had interrupted you, you would probably think, you know, why is he being impatient? Or if I did numerous times, it can come across as maybe what is he trying to tell me? You know, so it may not be, it may not come across very well. But in, um, again, in certain cultures, silence is a sign of respect. So you speak, you, you finish speaking, and I don't reply straight away. It could be five, seven, eight, maybe 10 seconds before I say anything. In that time, I'm, I'm showing that I'm processing what you said. I've listened to you. Now I'm ready to reply. So that 10 seconds for somebody who doesn't know can come across as like <laughs> five minutes. And I heard this from a, a businessman visiting uh, one of the uh, Middle Eastern countries. And before he realized that this was actually the norm, he started sweating because he thought, what have I done? I must have said something really <laughs> wrong for them to say nothing. Then, of course, the body language and everything, then he soon realized that it was actually just that's how they treated silence. On the other scale, in Latin culture, frequent interruptions is a show, a sign of engagement. So when it comes to culture, there's no right or wrong. Same with personal space. You know, in, in certain countries, personal space is very important. If you get too close, people can get uncomfortable. But in, in other cultures, you know, personal space is like, well, look, I like you or, or I, I want to, you know, I want to hear what you're saying. So, you know, it's, it's really no right or wrong. It is just understanding and, and being aware of that there is a cultural difference and respecting that, I think, is the first major step to overcome those barriers. Absolutely. And man, eight seconds of dead air is a long time. If I was going to stop for eight seconds right now, I'll show you how long it is. That's eight that seconds. That is long. <laughs> That's a long time to not say anything. That's a long time. If that happened on the radio, you would think your radio was broken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But people don't listen to the radio anymore. They listen to my podcast. They do indeed. They do. That's how I found you, Matt. <laughs> That's right. So how do you build trust with different cultures? Well, there is no easy way to get around it. I think the first and the most important uh, uh, step is to respect, you know, show a genuine interest and respect to the other culture. Accepting the fact that we are different. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we speak different languages, even English. There's a famous saying that uh, I think it's Mark Twain who says that England and USA are Two countries divided by the same language. So even in the same language, things can be misunderstood differently. So how do we build trust with a different culture? After showing awareness and, and, and respect for the other culture is to look for signs, the signs of body language and eye contact. And if you are in the same room with different cultures, and often is the case, I have colleagues that are from five, six different countries. We work with freelance uh, localizers 
based in 40 different countries. And the way people receive information, and most importantly, the way people would like to receive information is different. If I'm writing to my uh, client in Korea, I can't say, hey, John, what's up? Or, hey, John, what about this email that I was expecting from you? That is not what he would expect. For me, knowing that it's a different culture, what is it that they would like to see in an email, even in written communication? Now, looking at their messages, I can see this very clearly. They never start the subject straight away. It's always, dear Levant, I wish you healthy, good life with you and your family is doing well. So it is always a, a reference to family, my health, you know, before getting into business. So the right thing to do for me is to replicate this, you know. And um, whereas if I'm writing to somebody in the States or Canada, you know, I can say, hey, Matt, you know, I sent you an email the other day. Have you received it? See you or speak soon. I know that that's what you would expect or that's what you would, how you would write back to me. So this is one important, replicating the, the what's the word? The same sort of what we receive, replicating that. The other thing is, one of the things that mostly create conflict is to how feedback is given. Now, in many companies, people have colleagues from all different countries. So, I mean, generally the cultures are, it's either a high, high context culture or low context culture. In high context cultures, often hierarchy is important. So if I'm going to give a feedback to you and you're from a high context culture, I need to not sugarcoat what I'm saying, but I need to say it and present it to you in a way that doesn't come across as aggressive or negative. And often in high context cultures, criticizing someone in front of a team in a group environment can come across wrong. So it needs to be done one-to-one and clarifying that I'm raising this issue for the benefit of, for, of our overall quality or whatever the matter can be. So recognizing, is this somebody from a low context culture or high context culture? And adjusting accordingly. That comes, this about giving feedback, whether it's negative or positive, and also deadlines. In some countries, coming to a meeting five, ten minutes late is perfectly okay. You know, understanding that is very important. Or taking calls in a meeting. Now, uh, <laughs> that can be, <laughs> that can be misunderstood totally if the person is not aware of that. But I know in certain countries, people do take calls while in a meeting. So if this is the normal behavior, there's nothing for me to be get alarmed about it or, or get offended. Is it ideal? Not, because then by the time you take the call, you finish it, oh, where were we? You know, so the, 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 you lose momentum. And, and for me, it doesn't make sense. But who am I to judge? <laughs> because if I want to work, if I want to win trust with that culture, I need to follow suit. Of course, I'm not suggesting changing our core values or doing stuff that doesn't match our values. That's a different story. But within the same values, without changing any core values, adjusting to the other culture, 
is the flexibility that is required to get the relationship going. Once, once everyone knows each other, once there's a trust established, things get easier. And the other thing is that I come across that mistake very often is how we approach jokes or talking about politics, football, religion. You know, what if, if anybody asks me, look, uh, Levant, I'm going to visit this country. What is the most important thing that I need to be aware of is that, and I'll always say, whichever, regardless of the country, is that until you know your counterpart, do not make any references to religion, football, politics, <laughs> and refrain from making jokes. <laughs> because jokes are, you know, how, it's very interesting. Even with um, European countries, there are so many differences. In the UK, for instance, people make jokes. You know, in a, in a meeting, in, in you know, people make jokes. And that, that's normally received as like, it's good to start a conversation, break the ice. It's a good start. But in certain countries, a joke can come across really wrong. And what makes us laugh may, <laughs> may come across as, as offending in other cultures. So, so, you know, basically, so maybe I, I gave you a, a too long version, but these are the things to do and not to do to get trust built between the parties. I think it's really important to understand that things like humor are very cultural. Yeah. And there's often many subsets inside of a culture, which you're not, if you're not from that culture, you're not going to yeah. have that kind of understanding, right? Especially with business communication, there's also a disconnect between someone who might be like a management level person versus maybe a lower management level person or an employee. It brings to mind that study, and I'm paraphrasing it a bit, but the idea behind it was if you sent an email to your boss and your boss wrote back and said, good job, the bosses said 84% of their employees are going to understand that they're being true and sincere and saying, yeah, you did a good job. But on the other side, only 4% of employees thought that it was sincere and the rest thought it was sarcastic. All right, I see, I see. <laughs> so being clear in your communication is is something that's really vital. And so I guess let's talk a little bit about the lingo method, right? Because you've, you've built sort of a strategy. And the first step, the L in lingo is, is learn the market. How does somebody go about learning the market, like learning other cultures? Like how do they even know what they don't know? Good question, Matt. And, and I think it's so important to start from that level. What's it that I don't know? I think once we start from that, I think we can't go wrong. The worst thing is really assuming that we know or assuming that what I like and what works in my home market will work anywhere else. I think that's, that's a big biggest mistake that I come across and you'll be surprised how many even global brands do that. IKEA is is, is, uh, is giving us a lot of examples for that. You know, what makes sense in, 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 in their language can come across quite funny, like farting death scrunch. <laughs> I mean, they changed it and, and also certain words that can even be misunderstood by their neighbors in Denmark. You know, what is tricky or what is speedy 
in in their language is like four letter word in in Danish. So, you know, even large brands get it wrong. So, lingo is about learned market. In this context, this is part of a methodology for a business who would like to expand to new export market. And the context is more about the is my product or service required in this country. So, that's the part because Another mistake that I come across is a business who's, who's got a good service or product successful in their home country, thinking that it will be also required in, in any other country. Or they may get a, a request from one of the distributors or a couple of requests and assuming that, yes, we'll make a big success in that new export market. So the learn the, learn the market step one very much addresses that point. And it is... It is something that can be done by desk from our computers. We don't even have to visit the country. If we do, it's even better. But without even visiting the country, it is possible to find out the demand for our product or service. Something like Google search, keyword search. The volume of searching for that particular keyword can give us a good indication. One of my customers say they sell um, lots of different types of hangers. And did you know there's like 25 different type of hangers? If they want to expand to Germany, in German market, what is the type of hanger that is most popular? It is possible to find this out from just doing some Google searches using a keyword tool. Is it wooden hangers? Is it plastic? Is it metal? You know, is it trousers? Is it skirts, tie? You know, making this search before taking any steps can save a lot of time because at the end of today, going into a new export market is for growth. Did you know that when Apple announced that they are going to China, their shares gone up because expanding into a new export market is one of the most recognized ways for growth for businesses because basically same range of products or services can be presented to a, a totally fresh audience who never has seen the product or hasn't experienced it. It's almost like doubling your turnover in a space of time. So this is the first step. Understanding, is there a demand in that new export market for my product or service? You know, there's an interesting thing about misunderstandings and and a lot of that comes from language. You know, there's there's lots of examples of that. But I've even seen it here. You know, there was a a big mix up with Coca-Cola company years ago here where they had this, this contest that worked well in the United States. They moved it to Canada and in Canada, you have to print in English and French. And what they had done is made these kind of little bottle cap things where you'd turn it over and it would have wording and then you could make sentences out of it, take pictures and put it on your social media. And it just randomly took the words and put them on the bottle caps. And one of the bottle caps someone got said, you're a douche and not understanding that it was your uh, in English on top and the word shower in French on the bottom. Oh no! But it's spelled the same as the English word douche. So, you know, and they had several varieties of these mistakes that happened with, with words that are spelled in English that mean something different in French. Right, right, right. right? And it was just a complete PR disaster. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, I mean, you know, that kind of stuff with language you hear about probably is the thing you hear about most often, right? When it comes to, you know, failures in other markets. But step two is information gathering. What kind of 
information are we gathering besides just, you know, what, what you already talked about? Well, once we establish that a market requires our product or services, or it could be a couple of countries, you know, shortlisting a couple of countries or, or a country. And then the second step, information gathering, is to go a little deeper into that market. Some certain things, for instance, in Spain, lunch break is nearly two hours. It's unheard of in the UK. Now, in most of uh, Central Europe and Eastern Europe, the holidays are different. The Easter holiday, Christmas holidays, they can be in different dates. So depending on the product or service, those differences can be very important. So going deeper into those details is the information gathering stage. Belgium is a small country well, compared to UK. I'm not even suggesting Canada or United States. It's a small country. But there are two languages that if you want to sell anything in, in Belgium, it's very important to cover those two languages, French for Belgium and, and Flemish. So it's very important. So if somebody doesn't know about Belgium, can make an assumption that they speak French. And, you know, they may even think that French is French. So French in France, if they have documentation for France, they may assume that, yeah, we'll use the same documentation in, in Belgium. Now, from the marketing point of view and reaching to target customers, it may not be enough. You know, if it's a user manual, like for a telephone or TV, yeah, same French can be used. But if it is marketing and it is a product explanation, there could be different differences between French for France and French for Belgium. So understanding those differences are very important. And it happens indeed, those details are gathered in the second stage. So in step one, learn the, learn the market. We've chosen a country or new export market or more. And then in this second stage, we go deeper to make sure that, yes, actually we understand the, the habits. Because, for instance, if the company is advertising their products or services with Google AdWords, they may assume that, yeah, Google AdWords will work everywhere. But it's not the case. When we do advertising and, and writing for, you know, articles and blogs and emails and that kind of stuff, we have a lot of spelling differences. Actually, in the bio that you sent us for the show... I have to change the spelling for the American market. Right, right. That this is very smart, smart thing to do. And that's just UK here, and it's still English, right? And even between Canada and the United States, you know, there's differences in the spelling. I mean, it's not a whole lot, but you know, it's it's a few things here and there, and it's important. It is important, and also, I mean, you've done the smart thing because you don't want to come across as different to your what your audience is expecting from you. So even as something something minor can have effect on the receptiveness of your of your message. It does. So an interesting thing is, like when we're selling in the New Zealand and Australia market, if we use an American spelling, people automatically assume that what the product is is an American product. Right. Right. <laughs> and some people there, uh, it discourages them from purchasing it, even though you know our product that we're selling is made in New Zealand. So we have to use New Zealand spelling so that we can, you know, if we went the other way around, if we're selling in Canada or the United States of something from New Zealand, 
we could use the New Zealand spelling and chalk it up to say, yeah, this shows that we're from New Zealand, but I don't think people know in the United States that there's different spellings for the most part. So in that case, you have to correct, right? So it's it's kind of, there's a context, a cultural context to spelling and phrasing and, and everything, right? You just can't shove something into Google Translate, have it translate word for word, and you just end up with something that, you know, looks like the instructions I get on my my camera I got from China, you know, that it, it almost sounds like it was written by a child because the grammar is, is so terrible from the translation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't want to give away everything in your book, but so we went over learn the market and information gathering, and then there's navigate the market, go operational and open for business. If somebody wants to kind of start thinking about how they're going to take their business global or to another specific market, what do you think is the best kind of solution for them? Is it trying to find someone like you so that, like, I don't know, can, can someone hire you to, to teach them these things? Or do they look for a consultant that does that? Or, you know, is this something someone researches on their own? How does that process usually look? I think the most important part is for a business executive who is thinking of going into another export market is to start investigating and searching. You know, the mindset is very important, going global mindset. And that is like understanding the benefits of international trade, going global, and then also expecting that actually there will be cultural and language barriers. So when they start investigating, they can read books, listen to blogs like or podcasts like this one. And anybody that wants to read my book, I mean, for your listeners, I'd like to make an offer. Sure. Maybe at the end of the uh, uh, conversation, I can give you a link for, for any listener to download it. Also, looking into details of how other companies achieved that growth in other countries. Apple gets 58% of their income outside the USA, but this is not accidental. That is planned and executed to final detail. You walk into an Apple shop in any country, you get the same feeling as you would in the Canada or, or the States or the UK, you know? And okay, there's a cost element of cost, but look at them where they are. And that goes to any, any global brand, Samsung, Lego. You don't feel that it is a South Korean brand when you use a Samsung brand because they localize it for each country. And reading books such as mine will give the reader an insight into how other brands have achieved this. Okay, it is easy to give reference to Apple, Samsung, and, you know, Facebook. But in my book, for instance, I give a lot of case studies of normal size, you know, small to medium-sized companies. And one thing that I come across that when I look at the, the smaller companies being successful, I notice that it is the mindset of the executives that makes the biggest difference. A brand that's not doing very well internationally, there's a change of management, a new CEO comes in and says, look, guys, we can sell this product in other countries. And then suddenly the picture changes because how do you grow your business? If you're selling products or service in your home market, you can sell it to a point and will come a saturation point. And then what do you do? You can make improvements such as how can I improve, improve profitability? 
but there, there will be a limit. By opening a new channel, like another export market, everything changes. The growth suddenly becomes real. And then you know, it can be a measurable growth. I'm not suggesting it is very easy. It's not. But it is rewarding. Um, something that I will definitely recommend for a business executive to consider looking into new export markets. Right. I think there's a huge opportunity here, especially for digital delivery products, right? People have SaaS companies or they have products that are downloadable, templates, all that kind of stuff. You know, localization is a super easy way to address the market, especially parallel markets, right? You know, if you're selling only in the United States and you have a digital product, converting into a Canadian market is easy. Like it's probably a a one day job. And, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of research. Right. And, you know, even into other, you know, if you're predominantly in English into other English speaking markets is pretty easily. And the same goes with French, French and that kind of stuff. It's a lot easier than it is, you know, to completely convert everything. But yeah, for other larger organizations, there's definitely going to be a learning curve there. Right. And, you know, Levin, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. And the book is Good Business in Any Language, How to Thrive in Global Markets. And Levin, you said you had a download for people. Do you want to tell us what that is? Yes. I mean, for your listeners, I'll be very happy to offer a free download of my book. If they visit levent.team, if that is, maybe you can put this in the show notes, levent, L-E-V-E-N-T dot team, T-E-A-M, in case my pronunciation of team is not very clear. And um, if they visit that, that link, they will be able to download the ebook. That's the complete ebook, as well as some of the resources. And I'll be more than happy to offer a 20-minute free consultation. Anybody who wants to consider or explore new export markets, that will be a free no obligation consultation. Perfect. Levin, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you coming on the show today, especially all the way from the UK. I know there's a little bit of a time difference. So. <laughs> well, it was great pleasure speaking with you, Matt. And I loved being those shows because I learned so much. And that was a real pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.